Welcome, this is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 329 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, the replacement crew. Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsev. Part 2. Continuing from the previous episode, the prime crew for Soyuz 11 has been grounded just two days before launch. The brave backup crew now takes over on June 5, 1971. In the last episode, we covered Commander Dabrowski's biography, and this week we will cover Flight Engineer Volkov and Test Engineer Patsev. Standing 179 centimeters tall, broad-shouldered, and a real sportsman, Vladislav Nikolaevich Volkov known to his friends as Vadim, was the most sympathetic of the civilian cosmonaut engineers recruited by OKB-1 in 1966. He played soccer in the Moscow Championship for many years, first as a member of the Moscow Aviation Institute, where he was studying, then in the club Berevsnik. He also played ice hockey and handball and was skilled in athletics, He was even a boxer for a brief period. Among the cosmonauts, he was one of the best tennis and chess players and an excellent guitarist. In contrast to his colleagues, he also had an intense sense of humor and readily burst out laughing. Vadim was born on November 23, 1935 in Moscow. He was short and skinny, but impetuous. When his family moved and he had to change school and meet new students, the class bully stole his breakfast. The obviously weaker Vadim immediately fought for it. The other pupils respected him for this. It was one of his main characteristics. His father, Nikolai, was an aeronautical engineer, and his mother, Olga, worked in an aircraft factory, and he inherited from them his love of aircraft and the sky. Their house was near Tushino Airport, so from his backyard he could watch a variety of different types of aircraft take off and land, and during parachutist displays the sky above would fill with the colored parachute canopies. Many pilots and engineers employed at the airport lived in his neighborhood. From time to time, his uncle, Piotr, A combat pilot from the Second World War would visit his house, and Vadim would stare in amazement at the medals and decorations on his chest. Pyotr was his mentor. In such an environment, it was natural that Vadim would select the sky as his destiny. At first, Vadim wanted to be a test pilot, but on his uncle's advice, he decided to study aeronautical engineering. After finishing high school in 1953, he enrolled at the famous Moscow Aviation Institute, one of the two leading aerospace facilities which his father had attended. There, he fell in love with Ludmila Beryikova, who was training to be a food processing engineer. They were married in early 1957 and in February 1958 had their only son, Vladimir. On graduating in 1959, Vadim became an electromechanical engineer for aircraft missiles. 
But in April 1959, he transferred to Department No. 4 of OKB 1, where he had worked as an apprentice during his studies. After his graduation, he became a deputy to one of the leading designers in the organization department. When Vadim joined OKB-1, the development of the Vostok spacecraft, which was to carry the first man into space, was already well advanced. Later, he was more involved in the design of the control system for the modified form of the rocket intended to launch the Voskhod spacecraft. In addition, he worked on the design of the R-9 ballistic missile. In September 1961, he became deputy to the leading Vostok engineer, and in February of 1962, deputy to the leading designer for the Voskhod spacecraft. Vadim would later say, I am proud to have been involved in the Vostok spacecraft which carried Gagarin on the first manned space flight, and in its modification for Voskhod. Of course, the first cosmonauts were young military pilots who lacked strong technical backgrounds. Although OKB-1 Chief Designer Korloff had some of his engineers instruct the pilots, Vadim and other engineers argued that it would be better if they themselves could be permitted to fly in space to assess the performance of the systems they had designed. While working at OKB-1, Vadim did not lose his desire to fly aircraft. The famous test pilots, Sergei and Yokin, suggested that he enroll in an aeronautical club. He did and received a diploma as a sports pilot, which enabled him to fly solo on yak-light planes. The selection of Voskhod crews began in 1964. The first mission, which was scheduled for October, was to have a crew of three. The commander would be a military cosmonaut, the flight engineer would be an OKB-1 engineer, and the third place would go to a medical doctor. In May, OKB-1 Chief Designer Korolev met the 14 engineers chosen as candidates for this historic mission, and Vadim Volkov was among them. Volkov successfully passed all the medical examinations preparatory to the special training for the flight, but when the short list was posted, his name was not on it. Dissatisfied, he went to Korolev to complain. He pointed out to the famous chief designer that he was healthy and fit, he could pilot an aircraft, and had even made parachute jumps. To finish, he suggested Anyokin as a character reference. Korolev replied calmly, You are still young. There is time. It is impossible to send everyone on spaceships. Somebody has to design them. But such words could not satisfy Vadim. He was so disappointed that in the tram car, he told his friend that he was going to finish the soccer referee school and become a professional referee. Of course, that did not happen. Instead, Vadim was included in the team of engineers responsible for recovering cosmonauts from a spacecraft after it had landed. Interestingly, in March 1965, he participated in the recovery of Belyaev and Lyonov, who came down in a snow-laden forest far from the planned site. At that time, Volkov and Lyonov could have had no idea 
that their paths would cross six years later in the manner that they did. Even though Volkov did not make the Voskhod flights, he did not give up. Instead, he was among the eight engineer cosmonauts chosen in 1966 to train for Soyuz flights in Earth orbit and the L-1 and L-3 lunar missions. They began training with parachute jumps, flying with instructors in MiG-15 jets, altitude chamber testing, and simulating weightlessness in the Tu-104 aircraft. In August 1966, they trained for recovery from a Soyuz descent module on the Black Sea. One month later, Chief Astronaut Trainer Kamanin sent the engineers for medical screening by the Air Force, which only Kubasov, Volkov, Greco, and Yelizhev passed. These four remaining engineer cosmonauts joined the military cosmonauts in training for the mission scheduled for early 1967 in which two Soyuz spacecraft would dock and two cosmonauts would make an external transfer from one to the other. In November 1966, two prime and two backup crews were selected for the spectacular introduction of the Soyuz spacecraft with a mission to rendezvous Soyuz 1 and 2. Vadim was disappointed not to be selected for this, but the mission ended in disaster. When Komarov brought Soyuz 1 back to Earth, the parachute failed to open and he was killed. Vadim continued his training and was finally selected as the flight engineer of Soyuz 7, which was part of a three-spacecraft joint mission with Soyuz 6 and 8. Vadim joined two military cosmonauts, Filipchino and Gorbatko. The training was intense, and occasionally Filipchenko had to restrain his energetic flight engineer who, as the designer of some of the spacecraft systems, was eager to play a greater role in the simulator. Shatilov, who was in overall command of the three-ship flotilla, wrote of Vadim during this time, quote, As much as he was serious at work, at other times he was serene and always laughing. He could tell jokes and funny stories constantly for hours. He knew how to deal with people of all ages. At weekends, we would spend time in the forest with our families. There, Vadim was continuously surrounded with our kids. I envied him on how easily and simply he could communicate with the children. He sang the songs about pirates and thieves, played soccer and climbed trees. He liked to be the center of attention. He was always smiling." The three spacecrafts were launched one by one on 11, 12, and 13 of October 1969. But owning to a problem with the EGLA system on Soyuz 8, an automatic rendezvous with Soyuz 7 was not possible. Although an attempt was made to accomplish this manually, the result was unsuccessful, and with its fuel running low, Soyuz 8 had to give up the chase. Although Vadim was disappointed not to have docked, he greatly enjoyed his first flight in space, which lasted five days. He had taken with him a lump of Sevastopol soil that his son, Vladimir, had given him. In addition to the planned experiments, he made TV broadcast. In fact, 
He was the first accredited journalist in space because he had earlier written articles for the newspaper in which he signed Vladimir Volkov. While in space, he kept a personal diary. Filipchenko was impressed, saying, Volkov noted every interesting event during our flight, as well as what happened down on Earth. Even now, knowing how many experiments he had, I observed with pleasure how he succeeded in managing his time and in describing so nicely his impressions and thoughts. On the second day of the flight, as the other crew members rested, Vadim watched the Earth from an altitude of more than 200 kilometers. When he experienced something very unusual, he immediately recorded in his diary, quote, Orbit 47. There are in the world events that I would describe as momentary sparkles, meaning that a man does not immediately understand them. Such a sparkle for me was the Earth's voice. Below it was nighttime. I looked at the onboard globe. Our ship was over South America. I controlled the operation of some instruments, and from time to time I would look away from the panel towards the Earth in darkness. In the headset, I could hear a characteristic background noise. I had an impression that behind me, above my ear, there was a giant invisible man breathing. Then it was absolute silence, and suddenly, out of the darkness, I heard the barking of a dog. A dog is barking. Is it an illusion? I strained my hearing and searched my memory of all known sounds of the earth. There is no doubt. It is a dog barking. The sound was barely audible, but full of life. Then it occurred to me that this is the voice of Laika. And then, clearly, I heard a baby cry. Other voices, and again a baby crying. The universe was alive. The earth was flying past underneath. Somewhere on the earth a baby was crying. Somewhere a mother was gently calming her baby. The dog was barking to protect them. It made little sense, but it was possible to feel it. Possible only once in a lifetime. Orbit 50. I was watching the sunset. Before the final part of the solar disk disappeared, suddenly several layers of atmosphere appeared above the horizon. It was red, just above the horizon, then orange, then dark blue, and finally the black of space. Stars were visible, shining through this pattern. Then it all became gray. In the constellation of Scorpio, there was a subtle crescent of the ash-colored moon, I could clearly see the constellations of the Southern Cross and Centaurus, which were not visible from the northern latitudes of our home. I recall the science fiction books. Perhaps one day we will have the chance to fly to the stars. End quote. In May of 1970, Vadim Volkov was selected as the flight engineer of the third Salyut crew with Shatilov and Patsev. The training for a mission to the space station was very different from his previous experience because in addition to the Soyuz simulator, the cosmonauts had to familiarize themselves with the much more complex systems of the station. 
Then in February 1971, the rookie cosmonaut Dabrowski took over command of the third crew. Vadim became its only veteran. The failure of Soyuz 10 to dock with the Salyut and the change of crews on the eve of the Soyuz 11 mission resulted in Vadim and his crewmates being launched somewhat earlier than they had expected. Before the mission began, Volkov wrote, Your hours in space are not eternal. They will end. Sometime, unfortunately, they must end, the hours of your life. But only for the time being. There will be others. The day before they left for Baikonur, the cosmonauts held a big party. As usual, Volkov was the center of attention. He was smiling and singing. Several years later, Viktor Patsheyev's wife, Vera, recalled the days before the flight and that last party and said that Vadim told her he had a premonition that he would die in space. Now let's move on to the research engineer of the Soyuz 11 crew, Viktor Ivanovich Patsheyev. Viktor was a tall and thin man with green eyes, and he was going bald. He was so quiet that his presence was often overlooked. Cosmonaut Shatilov said of him, quote, Viktor was the total opposite of Vadim. He was also an engineer, also a top expert, but in contrast to Vadim, he was reserved, quiet, self-controlled, and humble. He didn't talk much. He liked his job. He was an expert in scientific instruments and related apparatus. He passionately wished to fly in space to test and work with different devices, the majority of which had been designed with his participation. He avoided conflicts and was never in a hurry to tell anyone what he was thinking. He knew how to listen to all sides. He would prove his views not by mere words, but by logic and indisputable facts. End quote. Victor was born on June 19, 1933, in northern Kazakhstan, not far from the border with Russia. His father, Ivan, was a director of the local bakery. Victor's mother, Maria, described her first child as follows. Victor is the replica of his father in appearance and in characteristic, especially since he grew up to match his father's stature. Above all, Victor liked sincerity and honesty. As a self-educated person, Victor learned to read when he was only five. In those times, children began school at the age of eight, but he wanted to go earlier. As his mother recalled, quote, He went to school when he was only five. In fact, we couldn't separate him from my nephew, who was several years older. Victor even sat with him on the same bench. The teacher decided not to send him home. End quote. When he turned six, Victor told his mother, Now I am starting school seriously. After taking a placement exam, the school administrator wanted to enroll Victor directly into second grade. Victor's eagerness to attend school at an early age 
demonstrated his main character attribute, a determination to accomplish his goals. Victor's sister, who grew up under her brother's influence. In 1976, she wrote the book, Courage of Aspiration, about her brother. At the beginning of the book, she wrote, quote, I remember my brother as a tall boy with large green eyes, often with a book in his hands. Once he had started, he would read for hours, and nothing could separate him from his book, end quote. Of his school subjects, he preferred mathematics and the natural sciences, like physics, biology, chemistry, and astronomy. When World War II started, his father was called to the front and in October 1941 was killed about 130 kilometers from Moscow. He was buried in a mass grave. The loss of his father deeply affected Victor who was less than eight years old. He became reserved and more serious, as though he had matured before his time. In the spring of 1943, he made his first model airplane using a design from a pre-war technical magazine. He carved the wooden body of the plane using his grandfather's knife and made the propeller from a tin can. The first flight was not very successful, but he learned the concept of center of mass. A year after the war ended, his mother and her children moved to the village of Koslestik with Ivan Volkov, her second husband, who had four children of his own. From the beginning, Victor got along well with his two stepbrothers who were of his age. Together, they enrolled in the number 45 Railway High School at Aktivbritsk, and it was there that Victor finished his 7th and 8th grades. In 1948, they all moved to Nyestrov on the Baltic. Many of the buildings were still in ruins from the war, and there remained many unexploded weapons lying around. The family lived in a damaged building. His stepfather worked in the bank and his mother in the bakery. In 1950, Victor completed high school. His favorite subjects remained physics, astronomy, and mathematics. While in high school, with some friends, he made a small telescope. This was his first views of the moon, the stars, and the planets. This helped trigger his desire to fly in space. After completing high school, Victor decided to enroll in geology at the Institute of Servlosk, but as he traveled to take the entrance exam, he found that he could not afford the ticket for the train and had to spend the night in the Moscow railway station, which caused him to miss the exam. Instead, he decided to try to enroll at the Moscow Geology Institute, but his exam score was just below the acceptance level. Nevertheless, the institute suggested he could attend the Penza Industrial Institute. Victor was disappointed at his failure, but did not wish to be a further burden on his mother, and although not yet 18 years of age, he decided to live independently and enroll at the Penza Industrial Institute and take the exam again the next year. But that did not happen. 
During his first year of study at Penza, a course was introduced on calculators and analytical machines. It represented a major challenge, but Victor applied for and was accepted to study this new technology of computers. This was a key point in his career, as he decided to remain in Penza rather than reapply to the Moscow Geology Institute. Although Victor had a small scholarship, it was inadequate, even living alone. He studied during the day and unloaded trains at the railway station at night. However, he was one of the best students in his class and had no trouble passing his exams. From his earliest childhood, Victor had developed a love for writing, reading, and literature. In particularly, he liked the science fiction novels and the classics. As a student, he wrote articles about movies for publication in the local newspaper and reviewed the literature of ancient China. Victor was not a great sportsman. When he did play, he preferred individual sports like skiing and biking. He was a sharpshooter and competed as an archer in the national championships. Victor graduated from Penza with distinction in June of 1955. The title of his final exam was The Design of a Harmonic Functional Analysis Device, and it was 117 pages. He wanted his graduation exam to be something special, which would far surpass the required standard. So he prepared it not only as a student, but also as a scientist. One week before his 22nd birthday, he graduated as a mechanical engineer. He went to work as a design engineer at the Central Aerological Observatory of the National Hydrometeorological Service. There, he designed instruments to be carried on the balloon-borne packages and sounding rockets that were used to gain data to identify the physical characteristics, chemical composition, temperature, humidity, pressure, radiation, and magnetism of the upper regions of the atmosphere. In late 1956, Victor married Vera Kryajeva. Vera was a researcher in the Central Science Research Institute for Machine Building. The institute hosted one of the ballistics groups which supported the Mission Control Center at Yevbatoria. Their son, Dimitri, was born in the fall of 1957 and a daughter, Svetlana, in February of 1962. At this time, Victor was dissatisfied with his responsibilities at the observatory, but he did not let his dissatisfaction disturb his work. In contrast to other young engineers hired straight from the university who needed at least a year to familiarize themselves with the new environment, in less than two months he had been accepted as an equal employee. His first assignment was to develop an apparatus to measure sky brightness, and this was later installed on a meteorological rocket. His managers recognized his skill, working habits, and commitment and in January 1956 promoted him to senior engineer in the group investigating the upper atmosphere. He found this much more to his liking. In a letter to his sister, he wrote, The new job has its own characteristics. It also involves annual expeditions. Now I am happier. 
I like the fact that I am able to see the world. Victor participated in expeditions that fired rockets from different sites, including deserts. He continued with his scientific work, too, publishing papers on the design and testing of scientific instruments that were highly regarded by experts. Even so, his colleagues observed that although his work was brilliant, he was always dissatisfied, always thinking that he should have been able to achieve more. By now, something else was interesting Victor. He met Chief Designer Korolov for the first time in September 1957. A few months later, when Sputnik was already orbiting the Earth, Viktor met Korolov again at a seminar. The 24-year-old engineer went to Korolov and, after introducing himself, asked if he could transfer to his design bureau. Korolov, who liked young engineers that spoke their mind, asked Viktor about his current work. After Victor had outlined his experience in the design of meteorological rockets, Korolov said that he would find him a position, and in November 1958, Victor moved to OKB-1 to work as a design engineer. Victor began work on the design of spacecraft life support systems until January 1962 when he became an acting manager of one of the sections of OKB-1. Later, together with Vadim Volkov and other young engineers, he also became a member of the recovery team responsible for the evacuation of cosmonauts after landing. At that point, Victor started to think of becoming a cosmonaut. After discussing it with his wife, he once again went to see Korolov. In contrast to previously, Korolov was reserved. Too many of his young engineers were expressing their interest in leaving their design work in order to join the cosmonaut team. Korolov asked Viktor why he wanted to become a cosmonaut. As usual, Viktor carefully explained his thoughts, saying that he believed that he would be more useful if he personally tested his equipment in the spacecraft. Korolov said, good, we'll solve that and the meeting was over. However, when the first civilian cosmonaut engineers were announced in May 1966, Vadim Volkov was on the list, but Viktor was not. In August of 1967, Mission signed the document to recruit research engineers to participate in the N1L3 lunar landing program, and on August 18th, after passing the medical examinations, Victor was accepted into the OKB-1 second group of civilian cosmonauts. Ten days after joining the group, Victor completed his examinations at the Flying Club and became a sporting pilot of the Yak-18 aircraft. In February 1968, he began to fly with an instructor pilot seated behind him, and on some flights, he conducted complex maneuvers that subjected his body to a force of 5G. Later, he made parachute jumps with the other engineer cosmonauts. He trained to simulate weightlessness using the TU-104 aircraft. In addition, there was a special platform for investigating the dynamics of landing on the moon. They visited the Vesda Design Bureau, and Victor participated in tests in which he donned the bulky lunar spacesuit 
and researched walking in conditions approximating lunar gravity on a surface expected to be similar to that of the moon. He was also involved in the testing of the LK lunar module. This was going to be used to take a single cosmonaut down to the moon while his colleague remained in the main ship in orbit. Cosmonaut Krunov recalled of Victor's first days at training, quote, When Victor began training, we saw immediately how well this quiet and unpretentious man could work. His modesty was incredible. End quote. In May 1969, Victor joined the contact group who were training to test in Earth orbit the rendezvous and docking systems to be used in lunar orbit by the spacecraft of the N1L3 program. It was during this time that Victor met Dubrovsky for the first time. Victor was assigned as a flight engineer for the active spacecraft on the first test. Then in early 1970, mission assigned Victor as a research engineer on the third crew of the Salyut 1 station. Victor was delighted, saying, quote, Your position in the crew, flight engineer, researcher, physician, or commander, isn't important. In order to work together well, we have to believe in and respect one another, and we must celebrate the achievements of our crewmates. That is the foundation of a crew. End quote. But Victor was almost invisible. In the medical room, on the sports field, in the cafeteria, he was always so quiet. Some of the staff at the training center did not realize who he was until he actually flew in space. He simply had no desire to be the center of attention. He was the opposite of Volkov. Victor spent the Labor Day holiday of May 1971 with his family and friends in the countryside. According to his mother, when he left for Baikonur, he had little expectation that he would fly. His family knew nothing of the Soyuz flight and the orbital station. All that was a secret. His stepfather believed he was leaving for a short trip related to his work. On the eve of his launch on Soyuz 11, Victor told journalists, quote, The profession of cosmonaut cannot be anything except attractive. Space exploration is something new and very interesting. I think this flight is a logical continuation of my life. End quote. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 329 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Entitled, Soyuz 11, The Replacement Crew, Dubrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev. Part 2. 
Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode will be released on January 16th when we will light the candle on Soyuz 11. If you are wondering why I spent so much time on the first crew of the first space station, it will become apparent as the series progresses. I really like covering these guys. They were engineers like me. A very noble profession. <laughs> of course, Victor had a mechanical degree. Guess it's just too bad he couldn't become a real engineer with an electrical, electrical degree. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. During my time as an electrical engineer, there was always a rivalry between the engineering disciplines, and we used to give each other a hard time. The mechanicals would tell the electrical and instrumentation engineers to just run a new extension cord and hook up your Commodore 64. <laughs> and, of course, we would tell them, just bring in another garden hose with a spray nozzle. <laughs> so, I really enjoyed these guys. I think it was time for the engineers to fly. Now, what a contrast between Volkov and Patsayev. The center of attention versus the introvert. They make up an interesting crew. What did you think about Volkov's sparkle moment in Earth orbit where he heard a dog barking, a baby crying, etc.? It kind of reminded me of Apollo 14's Edgar Mitchell's life-changing experience on the way back from the moon. I guess going to space changes a person, or at least they gain a new perspective. Now, if you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 156 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. should be available on all podcatchers. Okay, how do we do for our funding goals on 2019? Well, not too good. <laughs> Perhaps I was a little too ambitious. We reached a total of 245 patrons, and the goal was 300. And we reached 487 total donors, and the goal was 600. So we didn't quite make it. So for, for 2020, I'm going to make a little bit uh, easier goals. I hope they're easier goals. I'm going to go for 500 total donors. That's only 13 more than last year. And 300 Patreons. That's about uh, 55 more than we had now. Can we make this? Sure we can. <laughs> Along with the new year, we have the new longevity emoji. This year, to honor the search for life throughout the galaxy... The new emoji will be the alien head. So for those who currently have the galaxy emoji, your next emoji will be the alien head. For those of you who are performing the emoji maneuver, now is a good time to get your new longevity emoji next to your name on the donors page. We will try to get the 2020 donors page up as quickly as possible. But it does take some time to get everyone promoted and everybody's new emoji correctly. So 
we are working on it, and I just ask a little bit of patience with us, and I apologize for the delays. It's a lot of work transferring everybody over. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption, please consider supporting it. We are entirely listener-supported, and we have no commercials. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the past week, we had several new contributions, and I would like to recognize Dominic V. from New York, who donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Martin G. from London sent in another donation and is at the Orion level. Igor P. donated at the Mir ISS level and earned a satellite emoji. Igor also pledged on Patreon at the Mir ISS level. Dominic C. from the UK sent in another donation this uh, in 2019 and moved to the Mir ISS level. Stuart L. from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. Per H. from Norway sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level. Simon G. from the UK donated at the Apollo level. Christoph M. donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Daniel S. from Kentucky donated at the Apollo level. Robin P. from Switzerland donated at the Apollo level. Justin H. donated at the Apollo level. Kenneth W. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Jim E. from Ohio donated at the Gemini level and earned a moon emoji. James J. donated at the Soyuz level. Matthew G. from Kentucky donated at the Mercury level. Eric P. donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Aaron N. donated at the Mercury level. Anthony D. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Craig H. from Australia sent in another donation and moved to the Mercury level. Jeffrey N. from Iowa donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Christopher B. donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Kyle N. from Ontario donated at the Vostok level. Andy from the Czech Republic donated at the Sputnik level. Samson P. from California donated at the Sputnik level. Grant M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Florian G. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Michael K. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level. Thank you very, very much for all that support coming in at the end of 2019. I sincerely appreciate it. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Happy New Year, everyone. It is my pleasure to announce the winner for this episode. Now, the winner for this episode will have a choice of a Space Rocket History coaster, magnet, or sticker. Yes, that's right. You'll have a choice. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected... Christoph Mandy, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com to tell us your address and SRH logo preference, coaster, magnet, or sticker, we will mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 487 of you who contributed in 2019. May your 2020 be great. My sources for this episode were Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Roads to Space by the Russia Scientific Research Center for Space Documentation, Soviet Space Program website, Russia Space Web, 
SpinGraph website, Astronics website, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts website, Wikipedia, and Salyut, the first space station. Okay, thanks for listening all the way to the end. And as a reward, <laughs> uh, we do have some off-topic comments. So if you uh, care to continue listening, it's at your own risk. I thought it might be fun here to get one of these uh, genealogy surveys. So I had one done. I watched you, you had to spit on this thing and you had to send it in and they do all the tests on your DNA just to find out my ancestry. So I thought I would share that with you because you might find it interesting. <laughs> if you don't, please feel free to move on. Uh, here's, here's what it is. Uh, European, 99.5% European. <laughs> I have uh, Northwestern European is the majority. 98.6 is Northwestern European. British and Irish, 62%. British and Irish. French and German, 18%. Scandinavian, 3.4%. Finnish, 0.2%. And then the Southern European, only four-tenths of a percent. And uh, another category called Broadly European, 0.5%. And the final category is West African. Believe it or not, half a percent of West African. Okay, <laughs> that surprised me. I didn't know anything like that, but it was a really interesting little thing. And I know these things are kind of a privacy concern too, but I... I had not known my history. I had always heard that uh, we were mainly Scots-Irish, and uh, this kind of confirms that. But I thought you might enjoy that to know where your host is from. Okay, that's all I have, folks. Thanks for listening. I will try to have episode 330 posted by Thursday, January 16th. That's two weeks. Happy New Year, everyone.